You know, my story is I joined uh, Sovereign Grace or got involved in Sovereign Grace while I was serving as a missionary overseas. Uh, it was the year 2008. I felt an increasing desire to be involved in uh, training as a pastor, church planting, and I'd sort of put the word out there to friends and family and people I knew were planting churches and hadn't had much interest or response back at all. A friend of mine connected me with Dave Taylor, who was in Wales, and Dave was immediately interested, attentive, and kept saying something that goes a little bit like this, anything I can do to serve you, uh, which to me at the time seemed quite you know, sweet, uh, but unusual. I hadn't had really anyone speak to me that way before. And he sent me a box of books and CDs just to bless me. Saying CDs sounds a little bit old-fashioned, doesn't it, now? But um, such, it was in 2008. And as I've got to know over the years, Sovereign Grace Church pastors and people, I've found Sovereign Grace Church people and pastors to be humble men and women, godly, generous, and with this real desire to serve. It's really a distinctive of our Sovereign Grace Church culture. Uh, even if you'll meet uh, some really senior leaders in Sovereign Grace, like Mark Prater or Jeff Perswell, One of the things that has always struck me about these men is that they have a genuine interest and care for people. They're never too busy to stop and just bless you, to listen to you, to care about you. And that is something that I've never experienced before in any other family of churches. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to take some time just to look at where does this come from, this cultural value, this aspect of our DNA. Uh, Today's message, it's not a corrective message at all. Uh, My heart is to stir you guys up by way of a reminder of what we already know and believe. Uh, This is a wonderfully servant-hearted community, especially for those folks that may be new and visiting or listening online for the first time. Charlotte and I have been recipients of people's servant-hearted care over and over and over again. I could list so many examples over the years, but we want to stir each other up by way of reminder. So, Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to read from verse 20 of chapter 20 through to verse 28. And then we're going to invite the Lord to help us this morning. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, well, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles 
lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for the immeasurable gift of your word this morning. And as your people with Bibles wide open, we want to hear from you, Lord. And so I pray this morning, open our eyes, open our hearts, help us see your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, friends, I want to begin this morning with a question. Um, Have you ever felt overlooked for something? That question sends me back to high school, primary school, and school awards nights. You know, when the whole school's gathered together, and I'm on the edge of my seat thinking, did I win something this year for one time? And so everything goes through, you know, music, no, maths, no, English, no, science, well, this year's winner is a wonderful improver. Yes, that's me. Has out, you know, surprised everyone with their wonderful performance this year. Hardworking student, a very good student. This year's award goes to Emma Chufo. And sort of, yeah, I go, oh, yes, clap, 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 yeah, very good, very good. But inside, that deep sinking feeling relegated to a sports participation award yet again this year. That sinking feeling of realizing yet again you haven't won something. You haven't been recognized for your work. You haven't been awarded. Even what you feel is owed to you. You know, it's possible not only to feel or to be overlooked at work or at home or in the world, but also in the church. You know, maybe you're involved in lots of different service areas here in this church and you feel underappreciated. You feel overlooked. No one appreciates my sacrifice. Maybe you're not involved in serving per se, but you have this deep sense that you have many gifts and yet no one seems to be using me and my gifts in my gift area. Maybe, alternatively, maybe your self-evaluation is you feel you don't really have anything to contribute. You look around and you think, I'm not super gifted like others. And so for you, you'd rather be overlooked and not involved. Maybe even differently, maybe serving is something that you haven't even considered. Maybe church for you is less a family and the temple of God, and maybe it's more just the thing you attend on Sunday, and this whole idea of service is kind of something new. You know what? Part of the challenge that we have on this topic of serving is our culture, a culture that places us right at the center of it. Our culture says, want to know who you are? Well, think about what you desire and follow that. Want to find happiness? Want to find joy? Want to find peace? Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. 
You know, our culture, self-centeredness is no longer a vice, but a virtue. Selfishness is now in our culture celebrated. Our culture says your responsibility in life is to follow your desires and find happiness. But when we take that culture and we apply it to church, our culture says the only service you ought to involve yourself in is service that serves you. The key question is, how does that service make you feel? I mean, do you enjoy it? Great, go for it. Do you not enjoy it? Well, it's probably not right for you then. You probably need to stop serving in that, and you just do you. Here's the truth. A culture that puts me at the center is directly opposed to the call of Christ upon our lives. In our time today, we're going to look at this issue, which is really at the very core of Christ and how he saw himself and why he came, and that is the issue of service. We're going to look at where we get derailed by our culture and our hearts and how we can build a culture of Christ-like service. If taking notes, the title of this message, very, very simple. It's the fifth one in our series, and the title is simply Service. And we've got three points that we're going to be looking at this morning. It comes straight from the passage we've just read. Point number one, service gone wrong. Point number two, our servant king. And point number three, growing in a heart of service. Three points, but one heart from our passage today. And that is that our passage shows us we have a new identity as a servant people following in the footsteps of a servant-hearted king. Our passage is about our identity in many ways today. We're going to see that we have a new identity as a servant people following in the footsteps of the servant king. That's where we're tracking today in this message as we expand this passage. Well, let's dive straight in with point number one for this morning, and that is service gone wrong. Just as a way of context to our passage this morning that we're looking up, uh, in the lead up to our passage, Jesus has been repeatedly instructing his disciples that he will suffer and he will die. Uh, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says this, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Again, Jesus says in the very next chapter, in chapter 17, verse 22, it says, as they were going, uh, gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Now, as they head up to Jerusalem, Jesus tells them one more time, just immediately prior to our passage in uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says the following. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised up on the third day. You know, as Jesus talks again and again about his upcoming death and resurrection, you would think that this would be a time of questioning Jesus and clarifying what exactly he means. Questions like, just to be clear, Jesus, this is a very distressing teaching. When you say be killed, what do you mean? 
Like, are we talking spiritually to be killed or something else? What about the Romans, Jesus? Where do they fit in? You see, the disciples were blinded by their cultural expectation. They were expecting that the Messiah would be this powerful military leader who would defeat the Romans by the power of God. The disciples thought that Jesus had come to establish the kingdom of God, meaning a physical kingdom of Israel far surpassing in the glory of the Roman Empire. And that Jesus would be the unrivaled emperor and would rule forever. And Jesus and the disciples are making the climb up with Jesus to Jerusalem. And these disciples are filled with faith and excitement that this is the moment. God will give Jesus the throne and strike the Roman Empire. And the whole nation will rally behind Jesus as their new king. And from this group of 12 disciples... Two young men see an opportunity. James and John are their names. Sons of Zebedee. Uh, They're possibly even Jesus' very own cousins. Jesus elsewhere calls them sons of thunder, probably because these two young men had quite a hot temper. And they see this opportunity. Let's try and get ahead. Let's try and make sure we secure a good deal for ourselves in this new kingdom. And so they pull out their secret weapon. And that secret weapon is mummy. Read with me in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, She asked him for something, and he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. James and John, uh, John and James's mum comes to Jesus and kneels down. It's a very respectful position and makes this request. What does she want? Well, she wants her boys to sit on either side of Jesus. Jesus, could you give my boys the most significant positions in your kingdom? This kingdom, Jesus, is going to be amazing. Jerusalem is right ahead. You're going to take the throne. Could my boys be in the most powerful positions? Now, Jesus knows full well that James and John have put their mum up to this. And so he actually responds to them and says the following in verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, well, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Now, Jesus knows these two young men are asking out of complete ignorance. They don't really understand what he's come to do. Can you drink my cup? It's a symbol in the Old Testament referring to suffering or to judgment. Can you endure what I've come to endure, asks Jesus? Can you suffer like I'm about to suffer? Can you drink the cup of God's wrath like I will drink upon the cross, asks Jesus. And though they obviously don't know what Jesus is asking. They're supremely confident that they will be able to do it. Yes, Jesus. Yes, we can. Not sure what you mean, but 
Definitely. I mean, we've seen your cup doesn't look that big. We've seen you drink. It looks quite simple. Drinking easy peasy. And Jesus concedes that even though they don't know what he's talking about, they will taste some of his suffering. James would be killed by Herod in Acts chapter 12, and John would be exiled to the island of Patmos. More, Jesus explains that the choice of who will sit in the most powerful positions in the kingdom of God will be God the Father himself. But just in case you were suspecting that this kind of selfish ambition for the top jobs was isolated to James and John, the other disciples catch wind of just what has taken place. And we read the following in verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. These ten other disciples were indignant. They were angry. These two had made a stealthy move to secure the top jobs in the kingdom. And most likely, these other disciples were eyeing off these roles for themselves. And so the fruit was they were angry. Who do these two think they are? And though it's quite a comical scene to us on this side of the cross, we'd be foolish to too quickly dismiss their example as irrelevant to us. And so the question I want us to think about is, what stopped these disciples from understanding true service? Well, three things, I think, strike us from our passage this morning. And the first is this, that they were blinded by their cultural expectations. You know, these disciples completely missed what the kingdom of God was all about because they lived in a culture that said the Messiah was going to be this brilliant general who would defeat the Roman Empire. And so they were jostling for positions because they thought Jesus was just about to launch a coup in Jerusalem. And they thought, great, now's the time. Let me be your left hand and right hand man. You see, most of us would never dream of asking Jesus for that kind of influence. But that is because we come from a completely different culture. As we've been saying, we live in a culture that sees our feelings and personal happiness are what matters most in life. And therefore, if God exists and if God is good, then he exists to make us happy. That is what our culture says. God must exist to serve us. You know, our culture would be less likely to ask Jesus for a top role in his kingdom and more likely to ask, Jesus, could you give me a house and land package in Jerusalem? Jesus, could we have club med every year on holidays in Jerusalem? Jesus, could I have a role, I'm not too fast at the role, but could it just be really, really satisfying to do the role that you would have for me in your kingdom? Jesus, could we be mortgage-free in your kingdom? Jesus, could I, I have a large social media following in your kingdom? You know, just like the disciples, we won't understand true service if we remain blinded by our culture and believe that God exists to serve us. Blinded by our cultural expectations that service is something we expect God to do for us and not something that God asks of us. And that is the first area in which they were blinded by their culture. But not just that they were blinded by their culture and that that stopped them from understanding true service, but secondly, they also had an exaggerated sense of their own abilities. You know, I love how James and John, they don't even hesitate when Jesus asks them whether they can drink from his cup. They're like, 
Yep, we can do that for sure. Absolutely. There's no pausing to understand what exactly Jesus is asking them, namely that he will endure the wrath of God for them on the cross. There's this kind of youthful self-assurance that whatever it is, Jesus, yep, we've got it. And yet the truth is so much different. You know, Matthew 26, 56, it says the following. It says, Then all the disciples left him and fled. Could these disciples drink from the cup of Jesus? No, they couldn't even hang around to watch him do it. They would completely abandon him. But in time, they would come to suffer for him. You know, what caused these disciples to try and jump on the rest of the pack and request top dog status in the kingdom of God? Well, in part, it was an exaggerated sense of their own abilities. You know, and here's the truth for us in wealthy Upper North Shore, Sydney. An exaggerated sense of our own abilities can create a massive hindrance to true service. You know, as a young man, uh, I was often in church with a critical eye to many different aspects of church life. A critical eye to the preaching and to ministries and to the way the budget was handled. But what was actually underneath all of that? Well, a belief that I could do better. Well, what changed for me? Well, in part, I became a pastor and realized that's a lot harder than I thought it was. And secondly, I learned that fruitfulness is dependent on Christ and not on programs. Just like Jesus says, John 15, 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. You know, if you have an exaggerated belief in your own abilities, you will always lack contentment in serving because you'll feel what's been entrusted to you is beneath you. And just like James and John scrambling for something better, more effective use of your gifts and time is what you'll be constantly searching for because they had an exaggerated sense of their own abilities. But not only that, most importantly and thirdly, perhaps the main reason they failed to understand true service is because they were focused on themselves and not on loving God and others. Now, the real tragedy of the disciples here is that they're so focused on themselves, they've completely missed what Jesus is talking about, and that is the cross. Jesus has been repeatedly saying that he's headed to the cross. I mean, think with me. Even if they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, why does no one inquire as to what he even means? Why does no one even ask him how they might support him in his final hours? Why does no one ask how even they might best love and support the other brothers if he is to die? Well, the answer is that they are completely consumed with themselves. All they can think about is securing the best for themselves. And so they can't even pause for a moment to think about anything else. And here's the truth. So it is with us. If our gaze is consumed with ourselves and our own interests... We will never understand true service because all we'll be thinking about is ourselves. And that's point number one, service gone wrong. But not just point number one, service gone wrong. Point number two, our servant king. 
You know, uh, confession, um, don't judge me for this. Uh, Charlotte and I, we really love the series Downton Abbey. Uh, it's so good. It's like beautiful acting and it's set in the sort of glamour of the turn of the century, you know, leading into the 20th century in the UK. And there's this guy, the Earl of Grantham and the Crawley family, and they're trying to survive in the midst of a changing world in which the aristocracy is kind of dying away. And the thing that really struck me the first time I watched it is that the servants for Downton Abbey, they live these completely separate lives. They're not to be seen and they're not to be heard. Their duty is to serve. And there's this kind of comical character in Downton Abbey called Mr. Mosley. And he's like really, really proud of being a servant in um, Downton Abbey. But his problem is that he can't keep his mouth shut. He keeps talking and talking and talking and frequently embarrasses the Crawley family because that's not his part to play. You see, a servant was more than a role. A servant was fundamental to a person's identity. There was a separation between the wealthy and the serving class underneath. And part of what I think we miss as Christians living in a consumer culture is that service for those that follow Christ is not merely something we do, but it's a fundamental aspect of who we are. Similarly, we see in our passage that one of the fundamental ways Jesus Christ saw himself was as a servant. Read with me again, verse 25. It says the following. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus points his disciples' attention to what they already knew of leaders in the world in their day. In, in their day, world leaders dominate and subdue people to bring them under their complete control. And in the world, those that are truly great as leaders are those that have completely dominated others. But according to Jesus, this kind of behavior ought not exist at all among his disciples. Jesus says, do you want to know greatness? It's not those you serve, but it's those who serve you. You want to be number one? It's not to master everyone, but it's to be like one who is mastered, like a slave. You know, I think we're so familiar with these kind of words as Christians, inside of service or being a servant, that we completely fail to hear how radical an idea Jesus is talking about right here. You know, to serve is not something that people aspire to or aspire to in this day. It's a lowly position. Jesus is saying the true greatness is found in serving others. Serving, working towards someone else's best interests and hopes. In radically loving others. To be number one is to be a slave, says Jesus the lowliest of positions in the ancient world. Think about that for a moment. To be a slave. A slave's whole life was about service. Service for which they could not expect to ever receive any credit 
or any reward. And interestingly enough, Jesus himself says as much in Luke 17.10. Jesus speaking to his disciples says, So you also, when you have done all that was commanded you, say, we are unworthy servants. We are unworthy, actually, slaves. We have only done what was our duty. Jesus isn't arbitrarily instructing his disciples to serve. He's doing something far greater. He's calling them to follow his very own example. Read with me again, verse 28. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus wants them to see that service isn't just part of why he came. It was his very purpose. Even as the Son of Man came to serve, says Jesus. At the core of Jesus' identity and purpose was service. He came as a servant. You know, in the beginning when God made the heavens and the earth, he created the garden temple. In the first readers of the book of Genesis, it would have been so clear to them that what the author is describing is a temple because it was filled with precious jewels. A river flowed out of it, bringing fertility to the earth around it. And God himself walked in its midst. This was a garden temple. And he placed the man inside the garden. And in Genesis 2.15, he said, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work it. Specifically, that word means to work for someone, to serve and to keep. God made man to be his servant, a priestly servant working in his garden temple. And God's plan has always been for his people to have a people of priestly servants who bear his image, who represent him in his world. And yet the serpent came and called into question God's motives. And so Adam and Eve chose to become their own masters rather than God's servants. And pain and brokenness filled the world. And so God removes mankind from his garden temple to serve in this broken world and promises that one day a true servant would come and make a way for his people to return to the service of God. And so we read in Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him And he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Hundreds of years would pass since Isaiah prophesied the coming of this great servant until the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 where the voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved son 
with whom I am well pleased, or perhaps better, in whom my soul delights. The voice from heaven says, this is my beloved servant. This is the servant that is to come. And so Jesus goes on to live a life of perfect service, resisting the devil, teaching scripture, loving others. You know, that Jesus' servant doesn't mean he has less authority in any way, but it means he's driven by a love for God and others in all that he does. He's the new Adam. And so perfect was his service. It led him to even give up his life for the sake of others. And so we read again Jesus in verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You know, on the cross, Jesus' heart of service was most fully displayed, suffering the wrath of God that others deserved, purchasing a way back to the service and presence of God for all people, living the perfect life of service that we have failed to live, but also giving us a beautiful model of the manner in which all of us are called to live. Here's the really important question for this morning that I want you guys to think about. When you think about your purpose in life, is service what comes to mind? Let me put it another way. Do you see yourself first and foremost as a servant of God Most High? I think Leon Morris puts it so well in his commentary. He says the following. He says, It is in lowly service that Christians find their true fulfillment. They follow a master who took on the form of a servant and lived his earthly days in humble obscurity. The way forward for them is in humility and lowliness. To set one's heart on eminence is to lose the heart of the Christian way. This does not, of course, mean that among the followers of Christ there will be no leaders, none in high places. It means that those who take the lead among them are to be humble, people seeking not personal success, but the opportunity of doing lowly service. Isn't that so true? Isn't that amazing to reflect on Christ? Lived out his life in humble obscurity. That is who we follow. Came as a servant. You know, it's not just that our passage shows us service gone wrong when self-interest blinds us to true service, but it shows us that true service is most beautifully displayed in Christ, our servant king. But not just our servant king, point two, but finally, as we close, uh, point number three, growing in a heart of service. You know, I just want us to spend some time reflecting about how we might actually do this. How do we grow more to be a Christ-like servant community? Maybe you're here and you've, you know, this is something new for you. You know, you've never really thought about this. And you're wondering, how do I actually grow? Maybe for you, you've been attending church or even just listening online to church for a long time. But when it comes to serving, it's not something you're really involved in. You know, for me, this topic reminds me of family dinners. You know, when your family is all gathered together around the table and a great feast is being prepared. But imagine if at the end of every family dinner, you wiped your face and without saying a word, left the house and went home. There's something so wrong about that picture, isn't it? There's something so not right about that. Because we're a family. We're together. And therefore, everybody in the family has a part to play. 
More, if we're a servant people following a servant king, we need a completely different way of thinking. And so I've got three different ways in which, steps in which I think we can take to help grow in our servant-heartedness. And the first, number, uh, the first one that I want to share with you guys as we finish our time together is by regularly meditating on the mindset of Christ. You know, one of the things we've been looking at this morning is that true service isn't just about doing more things. It's not just about serving more, but it's about realizing that you are a servant. But that isn't something that should weigh us down and leave you feeling like depressed. Oh, I'm just a servant. Isn't that horrible, terrible? No, it's glorious. It's amazing. Because we're servants of God Most High. He's shown us what he's like and he's called us to follow the example of Christ himself in service. And so I think we need to regularly meditate on this truth and fill our minds with the thoughts of Christ. To fill our minds with passages like Philippians 2 verse 5, which says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped that's used to his own advantage, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, wherever we might be, whether at the home or at the office or at church or on the sports field, we need to regularly take time to remember our identity and calling. It's Christ-like service of others. You know, for me, when I come home at the end of the day, I find myself so tired, you know, mentally tired, physically tired. And in those moments, I'm so tempted, I just want to crash on the couch and be served. And yet I need to constantly remember the mindset of Christ, which is that at all times, I'm a servant. I exist to serve others. Not just regularly meditating on the mindset of Christ. I think the other thing we can do is to develop a heart for playing a part and not the part you play. You know, we've been looking this morning at how service can go so wrong with these disciples jostling for a top position. And yet there's this kind of Christian subculture version of this that I think often goes among, on among our community undetected. And that is that a person kind of evaluates their own gift or even has shown a gifting in a variety of different areas. And that they demand, therefore to serve in areas that reflect their gifting, whether real or perceived. You know, they're reluctant to serve in other tasks because they feel perhaps these tasks don't reflect their gifting or are somewhat too menial. Now, it's important that you hear me say, I'm not saying you can never refuse an opportunity to serve or that God doesn't give people certain gifts. Of course he does. We're a body of Christ. But I'm talking about a spirit of service that is quite demanding and quite narrow and focused on a personal sense of gifting. You know, a classic example, which was in many ways me as a young man, is the young man who, when asked, could you help with setting up after church or before church, says, no, I'm actually primarily gifted in preaching and teaching, actually, so I don't really do serving in other things so much. 
You know, it's kind of a silly example. I mean, imagine a servant in Downton Abbey if the Earl of Grantham was to ask them, could you sweep the floors? And they responded in kind by saying, no, I'm actually more of a silverware polisher. That's kind of my thing. Floors, they don't really do that so much. Like, they've missed the point. You're a servant. You exist to do the will of your master. You know, true service is more passionate about playing a part than it is about the part it plays. You know, when you have the heart of Christ to serve, there are always so many opportunities. Knowing that your service is for Christ makes every act of service a wonderful privilege, and it means that nothing is beneath you. You know, so often people can kind of use uh, this way of thinking about sort of entitled service in a gifted area by misusing the parable of the talents. And they'll sort of say that Jesus was criticizing the person, the wicked servant, for failing to use their special gift, and they don't want to do that. And yet, I put to you, that's really a misreading of the passage and Jesus' criticism. You see, Christ's criticism of the wicked servant in the parable of the talents was not that they had some special gift that they failed to use, but it was twofold. It was one that the wicked servant criticized the very heart of their master, accusing them of being ungenerous and, and basically exploiting others. And secondly, that the wicked servant refused to serve at all their master, taking the talent and not even doing the bare minimum of putting it in the bank. You see, if Christ demanded that he serve in a manner befitting of his gifts, where would we be? His example was that he emptied himself for the sake of us. His focus was on loving others and not his own giftedness. And so, secondly, develop a heart for playing a part and not the part you play. But finally, as we close, prayerfully looking for opportunities to serve, I think is the third way in which we can really grow in a heart of service. You know, there's perhaps no prayer that the Lord loves to answer more than a prayer of surrender to serve. You know, here's a prayer that I first prayed many years ago and that I'd really encourage you to pray if you're keen to grow in service. It goes a little something like this. Lord, here I am your servant. Use me in any way you see fit. I will do anything you ask. I will serve in any way you please. I will go anywhere you lead. Everything I own belongs to you. All I simply ask is that you would lead me, for I'm often hard of hearing and slow to obey. And that's a really dangerous prayer to pray, friends, but a prayer that I guarantee the Lord will answer. Okay, maybe you've prayed that prayer. What next? Well, just keep your eyes open for opportunities to serve and ask people. Ask people, is there anything I could do to bless you? Ask people, could I help you serve you in some way? Would it help you if I did X, Y, and Z for you? Well, in summary, what a beautiful example, friends, we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, our servant king. And so what a privilege to follow in his footsteps and to live a life of service towards him. Would you join me in praying and asking God for help? Look, God, we thank you so much for the indescribable truth 
the unfathomable truth that you would send your only son to come, not in privilege and power, but as a lowly servant. Lord, we will never understand why our Lord Jesus would be so willing to die for our sake. And yet, how sweet it is that it reveals a powerful truth of who you are. That you are the God who loves to serve. And Lord God, as your people, we're just mindful of many ways in which that's not our story. Many ways in which so often our hearts can be filled with thoughts of ourselves and not others. Lord God, help us. Help us as your people, ever increasingly, to have the mind of Christ and to move towards others in love and service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.